Hello and welcome to our second edition of our bonus uh, flashback episodes looking back at the decade that was for the 2010s. I'm your host, Alex, and with me this time I have Logan. How are you, Logan? Good evening, Alex. Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, not too bad at all after the weekend result, but you know, it's a good opportunity now to walk down memory lane. Yeah, definitely. And and look, you know, we'll be talking. Well, so this episode will go out for our patrons, uh, first of all, um, just after we record this one, but then it'll go out to everyone else in a week's time. So by then, by the time everyone's listening to it, we will have already been uh, covering, hopefully, a win against Ipswich as well as the uh, fantastic win against MK Dons. Um, but, but we are here to, to talk about um, our flashback episodes and, and this and this week we're doing the second half of the 2010-2011 season. Um, so just before we get into, obviously, some pretty uh, momentous sort of events took place towards um, the November-December time of that season. Um, what we did last time was we talked about the shirt that I've got, which was a Tom Kearney shirt that I got uh, probably a couple of months into that season. Um, so I thought we'd talk about the shirt that you've got on. I'll actually I'll, I'll flick the, the screen up so we can get a better look at it. But it was the uh, the away shirt that season, and and you, we were chatting just before the episode about the uh, the reasoning behind why you got it. Yeah, I think it was our longest away winning streak in in the history of the club, and I think it got to mm. something ridiculous. I'm sure it was 14 games. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, I think it's something like that. Yeah, yeah, and in a season where we finished, I think we ended up uh, tracking about 11th or 12th. I know it was uh, it was kind of mid table uh, to. Uh, break the away game record um, of unbeaten uh, streaks is just a phenomenal achievement. I think it probably just speaks to um, how much of a, a rare thing it really is to not only go that long unbeaten away from home, but particularly when you see where we finished up, it's, uh, it makes it even more of a truly amazing feat. And, and even more amazing was the fact that I think when we beat Norwich earlier in the season, which it was a game that Brad and I touched on last time, um, I think that was actually to break a really long winless away streak as well. So he sort of went from one extreme to the other where we went from just having no luck away from home to to really sort of um, uh, putting it all together. Yeah, and especially when you kind of uh, reflect on the, the history of the club or particularly the recent history, and you think it's uh, probably fair to say that we've uh, been a, a yo-yo club, although uh, the heights that we've reached have been uh, spectacularly high. And um, I guess where we find ourselves now is, is the lowest of those points. But uh, I guess when you walk back and, and think about some of the things that have taken place, um, I guess a 14-game uh, away from home streak in in amongst an FA Cup final and uh, a couple of promotions and relegations. It's um yeah, it's it's truly remarkable. Did you did you get a name on the back or is it um, just a no, plain one? This this was just a a, a blankie. This was oh, uh, kept, kept it simple. It was more for the the memorabilia. I thought uh, this jersey seemed quite prominent in the sense that I, I don't know how uh, how long it will be before that streak gets broken again. Um, it might be a collector's item in, in a few years to come. Yeah, and we don't have a whole... I'm just trying to think back over recent seasons. I can't think of too many white away shirts that we've had. We normally go for the um, the black or, you know, with um, a blue sometimes. I think, was it last season or the season before? I think we did have a white one, but they're um, they're reasonably rare for us. 
yeah, absolutely. They do seem to uh, go against the the grain of um, of the, the tiger model that we do like to hold with the black and amber. Definitely. Okay. Well, we will jump on to the first sort of uh, topic of discussion, which is always a probably a controversial one these days, which um, in a lot of ways is a really sad turn of uh turn of affairs because at the time this was a really exciting and a really positive move for the club which was the um the takeover by the alums which was officially ratified on the 16th of december back in 2010 um and really by by bringing them into the club um um, adam pearson really sort of saved us from financial ruin really um we were presumably on the verge of going into administration and who knows what would have happened after that you know the, the chances of staying up would have been quite quite slim um and so the alums came into the club they were local businessmen so they weren't sort of um you know the, the sort of nasty foreign owners you sometimes get at clubs um there was that sort of local connection with them um so it was a really sort of positive and you know we are we're sort of looking at the 2010-11 season so we'll kind of try and keep it to that but it's hard to discuss this takeover without what came after that um how did what what are your memories i guess first of all of of the takeover happening and and the sense of um, optimism that it brought i think it's kind of important to remember that any any club of uh, particularly a championship level uh, when you hear them getting linked particularly with overseas businessmen or uh you know millionaires or billionaires from abroad there's there's an excitement that comes with it uh given the fact that you see the model of say a man city and it's only kind of normal that that a club like ours start to dream. And I think that whilst that didn't kind of reach those same heights, we were really um, kind of aware of the financial predicament uh, we were in at the time. And it was certainly widely publicised. I remember reading um, articles in the Daily Mail and even just the a lot of the reporting that was coming out of Hull at the time was so much um, around this idea that things were looking rather grim and the sense of the alums taking over was kind of the saving grace and it was the only real hope that we had, um, particularly having tasted Premier League football and um, starting to kind of feel a little bit greedy. Um, also the the kind of the downward spiral, if you like, after being relegated, uh, there's always that sense of will we ever get back there? And so I think that those two things combined with the, I guess, the, the paranoia that we felt of are we going to be just a languishing club now will we ever get back to to where we were and I think that the that coincided when the alums took over that it did uh, provide a a huge sense of belief and um, an optimism that we've got the financial backing we can see ourselves out of this debt and there's no reason that we couldn't go again and and make another another challenge at, at trying to get back up into the top flight so I do remember it being an extremely positive time and um it came at a really critical time too because it was uh, so much of it, as I said, the reports were doom and gloom. And when it mm. finally got done, uh, I think like everyone, we were really excited about the prospect of of these new owners and, and what, what could be. Yeah, I think it would have been just before they took over. It might have been the draw against Leeds earlier, um, a couple of weeks earlier, where we actually dropped into the relegation zone. So, so that sort of prospect of of a double relegation was sort of starting to loom pretty large. Um, you sort of touched on there the the financial backing that they gave, and I, th- I think the fact that um, you know probably as a sort of precursor of what was to come with um, the more symbolic elements of their their reign. I think Asim came out and sort of said that um, they'd done their due diligence, but there was a, a lot of costs that hadn't been uncovered during that, and, and that if they'd known, they might not have committed. And 
they ended up having to commit a further 10 million pounds on top of the 30 million that they thought they would need to cover the debt. Um, but then even on top of that, we'll, we'll go on and talk about the players that were signed, but they certainly in those early days weren't afraid to, to throw a lot of money at City and, and really get us going again. And, you know, some owners might have come in and, and sort of put, put a bit of money in to get the club going or, or to, to kind of keep the, door, the lights on and the doors open, but they kind of went above and beyond that um, in, in terms of the players they signed, in terms of um, the you know, the, the comments they made, I guess, looking back on them uh, are pretty empty. Um, you know, like, you know, Alan, SM was saying um, that football should be free. It should be like the air we breathe. And, and it was all, all this talk about making tickets really cheap, doing, you know, talking about extending the stadium, all, all those sorts of things, which were really exciting at the time, didn't really amount to much in the end. But um, it, look, it was certainly a very optimistic start to uh, to their time at City. Yeah, it certainly was. And I think one of the things that kind of would be rude not to touch upon as well was um, some of the players that we still had signed, as you mentioned, was I think Jimmy Bullard was still collecting mm. a handsome fee. And uh, I know that his Premier League contract was uh, maybe f- reported was like £45,000 a week. And I'm pretty sure that he didn't have a clause in his contract in the championship that lessened that. And I think that, uh, I guess, from a business standpoint, now when we think about how football's run, particularly for a club of our size, it was just absurd that um, that we had Ernest uh, that big still on the books and um, particularly someone like Jimmy Bullard um, who, who was certainly injury prone and uh, kind of will be always remembered by Hull fans for, um, I guess, the, the holy burnt in our pocket, so to speak, um, for not much return. But I think that that's a really important factor when we consider exactly what you mentioned with, with how the Alums operated knowing that they were still carrying on um, with, with burdens such as such as Jimmy. Yeah, and, and look, I think that's a good good segue into talking about the uh, departures that, that uh, came um, that January, I guess. And, and Bullard, as you mentioned, who had been a pretty big financial burden, was let out on loan to Ipswich and would then depart on a permanent in the summer. And, and in fact, I think the departure was really uh, because the Allens were able to find a clause in his contract or or tear up his contract even because of some um, uh, misdeeds off the field. So, you know, they certainly were very tough operators in, in that sense. And, and on that occasion, it actually worked in our favour. But, of course, in others, it wasn't necessarily to be the case. But um, a couple of players pictured who are city legends of their own right. Um, Ashby, absolutely, you know, captain in the club throughout four divisions, no other uh, footballer in professional English football can lay claim to to doing um, the same as him. Um, and then, of course, Caleb Follin as well, who had um, some pretty impressive displays for us uh, in both the Championship and the Premier League. So, um, you know, it, the departures didn't just stop in that summer when we when we were relegated from the Premier League. They, they continued on into the January. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that already touching on Ian Ashby, um, someone who kind of transcends his his time period, you know, playing through through the divisions with Hull and just being that uh, that really gritty, gutsy leader. And you always knew that uh, Ian Ashby was on the field, that, that there wasn't really going to be a sense that, that it was going to be acceptable for Hull to lie down. And I think it kind of uh, speaks into uh, who he was as a player and the kind of the style that we played. Uh, that real underdog tag of, of punching well above our weight was largely due to um, players like him and the the mentality, um, an example that he kind of set forward. Um, and it's amazing even now in city circles to hear how frequently talked about Ash still is. 
Um, you know, you, you're talking about Caleb Follin in the same bracket here, and and of course he was there's almost a romance with with a player of him because he uh, really performed at the at the peak of of, of City's height, particularly in that first visit to the Premier League. But um, you'd just be amiss to to not really highlight just. Um, what a critical player Ash is in in the city fabric, and um, and how much a player like him has really um, been a, a big reason as to why we've been able to to taste the joys and experience the the heights that we have reached um, over the last decade. Yeah, look, he, he was certainly a player who each each. Um, I mean, I only started following City really during that Premier League stint, but but from everything that I hear, he, he was one of those sorts of players where. Each division that we reached, there was always a little bit of talk about, well, maybe we need to find someone to replace him. Maybe we need to strengthen in that area. But he would just make that position his own and prove that he was able to take that next step with City. Um, and you see a few players like that at clubs. And, of course, we had Myhill and Dawson and France as well who, who made those steps up with Ashby. But um, to do that and to captain your club and, and to have the the seriousness of um, injuries that he had in his time and, and still sort of push through and fight back and, continue playing was was an absolute testament to his character and and as you say it's a testament as well on, on the fact that ever since he's left I think the uh, the most you know normally at a club and and to us to an extent we always sort of talk about oh well, we need a prolific striker we need a prolific striker but with us it's also always well we need an Ashby type in midfield and I think it's a testament to his his sort of lasting legacy at the club that that that's that sort of position that, that the supporters just always crave to have another player like Ashby in in the midfield in his mold. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really hard to even do justice um, to the kind of the player that he was, and um, yeah, just the, as you said, the legacy that he has left in the with the city faithful and and even the playing group. I think that it's they still even have a, a vast respect for what was done by by this squad um, in mm. the early Premier League visits and and how much it really just changed the the outlook of, of City's future. Yeah, and it, and of course it was great that he when he left he um, went to Preston North End where he was reunited with Phil Brown. So it was sort of a bit of a City old boys club there, which was um, at least great to see for him. Which I I think I think he sort of finished off his career there, or at least in um, in the higher divisions he finished off there. He might have played on a little bit at a lower level, um, but uh, no, that was that was also great to see for him. Hmm. Um, yeah, look, I think he I think he played. Uh, a season for Hull United in 2015, but I think basically Preston was his his last club. Um, I mean, of course, uh, there was a couple of other players who left as well. Um, uh, Hamosi, Zayati, Matt Duke, of course, uh, Craig Fagan as well. Um, they all left um, as the season wore on. I think over the over the sort of January and and onwards uh, stretch of the season, um, there were a couple of more departures from that sort of championship to Premier League um, mould at the club. But it was a real sort of changing of the guard when the Alums came in because, of course, with these these departures, we then also had a couple of players joining the club who went on to uh, pretty big things with City. Um, you know, we've got Aaron McLean and, and Matty Fryatt who were really sort of, even at that time, were, were really big money signings. I think Fryatt was uh, $1.2 million and McLean was a million, um, which, you know, it's it's not that long ago, but that, that was still... Re- reasonably big sums of money at that time, and especially for a club like us who'd been sort of on the verge of um, administrative issues. Um, and then, of course, central to that is James Chester as well. So, you know, we, we kind of went on a bit of a spending spree from uh, Manchester United's youth ranks at the time. We brought in Cameron Stewart as well. Corey Evans joined on loan. 
Um, I think Brady was the season after. Um, and then a couple of decent loan signings in goal with uh, first Vito Minoni and then Brad Guzan, who sort of went on to pretty big things in the Premier League. Yeah, I do remember this uh, critically because there was a, a meme that came out at the time, which was a, a remake of the the whole city crest, and it was um, the Man- Manchester uh, Tigers preserves or something like that. And I remember that being rather funny because there was uh, five or six uh, United players on the books at the time, which was um, absurd. But I guess it was uh, kind of exactly what we needed at the time, and it, it did uh, speak about the uh, the relationship that we did have with. Um, with Manchester United, and I think was that largely due to Mike Phelan, or was that well before his time even? I think it was actually Warren Joyce. Um, Warren. I think Warren Joyce because he'd been at he'd been at because I was I was looking this up because we had this Brad and I had the same sort of um, um, speculation because we weren't sure if it was Phelan or Joyce, but I think Joyce had been at Antwerp where he'd known uh, Fraser Campbell, I think maybe, uh, and then came across and joined uh, United, and then sort of obviously had the links with us, so was able to sort of set up that connection for us. Yeah. No, it's, I, I do remember it. And just on, on Matty Fry, I still remember uh, the uh, the amount of goals that, that he would kind of uh, would pick up. And I, I often remember him scoring in pairs. Like if he would score one, there was always a pretty good chance that Matty uh, Fry would score his goals in bunches. So, um, yeah, I remember just the, not the fastest player and, and not necessarily a, a huge physical presence, but um, an amazing finisher and, um yeah, just I do remember him in this championship season, in particular, being a, a real prominent threat. I, I do believe he was our leading goal scorer. Uh, yeah, got, yeah, looking back at it, I think he only ended up getting uh, nine or ten goals, particularly. But uh, yeah, he was just a uh, certainly a, a spearhead in in our attack, and perhaps it was him and uh, Jay Simpson that was the the likely um, striking combination before, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Aaron McLean came in. Yeah, look, you've got a good memory. He scored the nine goals for the season, which is um, pretty remarkable in only half a season to be our top scorer. But um, look, he, he was he was terrific, and 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 you know, sort of looking ahead a little bit to the twenty twelve thirteen season. But um, I saw posted on Twitter the other day the uh, Leeds game where we won two nil, where Aluko and Myler. Uh, no, sorry, I think it was it was was it Myler and Corey Evans. I think got the goals. Um, and I saw the comments sort of made that th- that game we went into where we were so dominant, we had Aluko and Corrin as our front two because Fryat was basically out injured all season in, in yeah. that first season under Bruce. And you think if Fryat had been fit that season where we just at times played some of the best football that I've seen under City, um, he, he could have, you know, absolutely scored, you know, upwards of 30 goals for the season. Um, he's just one of those. And and look, he, and he, then he showed the following season in that FA Cup run that he still had it for us and, it's sort of a shame the way it ended the way it did because I think he just never really got like he, the 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 way he led City in in such a poor side he never really got a good run of it in the good times. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and did have uh, quite a as you said did have quite an extensive um, bout of injuries as well that uh, certainly cut his career short. Um, but yeah, he was was a fantastic finisher. I will always remember that about Matty Fryer. And then just, I guess, finally, we sort of touched on it before, but with James Chester, um, almost probably the pick of the bunch from the United players, which um, at the time would have been reasonably remarkable to say because I think Cameron Stewart sort of came in with the most hype and certainly started off like a house on fire for us. Um, But Chester, he's another one sort of in the mould of like a Boas Myhill or those sorts of guys who 
it was really disappointing that after he left us, he just never really seemed to get a good go at it. And I don't actually even know where he is now. Is he at Stoke still? Or is uh, he, was he, did he go to yeah. Stoke? Yeah, perhaps. So it was, uh, he yeah. went from us to Aston Villa, I believe, was, was the uh, site. He, yeah, or well, no, he was at West Brom for, I think he went from us to West Brom where they tried to play him as a right back, which never predictably didn't work out. And I think it was from West Brom that he went to Villa. Uh, and then, yeah, from Villa to Stoke. Yeah, but for, for 300,000 pounds, um, that is just remarkable to, to pick up a player of, of James Chester's quality. And as you said, yeah, really, um, all signs were kind of pointing towards him leaving City because, um, he was kind of trending in the right direction and was, mm. was heading for a bigger club. So, um, he was yeah. almost sort of, he was the prototype Harry Maguire in a way. And, and Maguire did go on to obviously bigger and better things. And it's, I, I, yeah, I was, I was sure that Chester was going on to be, you know, an international captain of a, you know, centre back at a big club and all sorts of things, which it just never really panned out for him. And, and I believe Chester's success was one of the main reasons that Paul McShane ended up getting sent out on loan um, in this particular season as well, which, um, yeah. It, we we think about the resurgence of um of Super Paul McShane in the in the uh, coming years after that. Uh, see the you find that quite remarkable indeed. Yeah, absolutely remarkable. So he went out to so he went out on loan to Barnsley, and uh, it was sort of it was sort of around this time where he'd been in the team for that first spell in the Premier League, and then sort of dipped out for a few loans, and then came back in. And it was almost like it was two different spells at the club because such was the sort of gap in errors that that McShane sort of experienced in that sense um but yeah and, and I mean Chester coming in and also Jack Hobbs who came in uh initially on loan from Leicester I think and then I assume I, I think we signed him on a permanent deal in the summer um but y- yeah you just look at the players that came in under um under the Alums and and there weren't a whole lot of misses in amongst them um compared to compared to some of the players that we had to to sign on free transfers the uh the previous transfer window um, but we'll then, so we'll, we'll move on then and, and sort of look back at some of the games that we had and, and we sort of already touched on that, um, unbeaten away run, which I think got up to 14 games. Um, and, and it was, look, it was a tremendous second half of the season considering where we'd found ourselves and, and the fact that we sort of picked ourselves up and, and managed to finish an 11th spot. And I, I have sort of memories of those last few games. I think we, um, we had a sort of, uh, three game run against Watford, Swansea and Doncaster where, we picked up seven points and we were sort of an outside chance at the playoffs. And I think we didn't really take it, make it a serious chance just because we just didn't think, you know, we, we'd sort of left our run a little bit too late. But um, we, I think it was a game against Middlesbrough, I think, was the game where Scott McDonald, of course, Australian, um, breaks our hearts and, and gets a hat-trick to to sort of condemn us to, to another season in the championship. But realistically, given the way we'd started the season, I, we would have taken that at the start of the season. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I do remember it was one of those seasons that they kept kind of staying close enough to the playoff places to keep you interested. And they were just sort of snapping at the heels of of that uh, six six place spot. Um, but you did mention the Scott McDonald goal against um, against us and, of course, breaking our hearts, particularly being uh, being Aussies. But I, I also remember that game, the, the two-all draw against Middlesbrough that season that was played in uh, some of the, the heaviest snow I think I've ever seen a, a football match take place in. 
And um, I remember uh, Nick Barmby missed the sitter in that game and, and Robert Corrin scored a goal from um, from quite some range. But I think it was one of those ones where the ball kind of skidded and got lost in the snow yeah. uh, and, and trickled over. And I, I remember that being a, a just a, an incredible spectacle of a, a game to watch just given the fact that, um, yeah, the conditions were beyond abhorrent. Which is, which is really crazy when you think, I mean, I guess maybe it's a sign of global warming or whatever you want to call it. But the fact that um, these days you don't get a whole lot of uh, heavy winters anymore, I guess, and, and not many snow-filled games. But, yeah, that 2010-2011 season, I do remember quite a few um, pretty snow-filled games. And, of course, with that white away kit, it always made it a bit of a t- difficult viewing. Yeah, absolutely. And I just remember they, um, they, they came out to, to shovel the snow just to reveal the goal box lines and that was yeah. all you could really see from um, from the sky camera. So it was, it was a fascinating game. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, sort of a tale of two halves of the season, we had the same result against Leeds in both halves, the 2-2 draw that sort of condemned us to the relegation zone the first time around. Um, but then yeah. another 2-2 draw later in the season, which... Um, um, you know, re- realistically, we probably should have gone on to win because we, w- we were up 2-0 from goals from um, both Fried and Chester. But, of course, it was a future City player in Robert Snodgrass who got Leeds back into that game. And I sort of have memories at that time of Snodgrass. Um, he was a, he was sort of a pretty passionate player. And I, I don't know if it was while he was at Leeds or it might have been um, afterwards when he was at Norwich, I think it was, where he was still getting pretty riled up by the City supporters. So, was clearly still pretty fiery, uh, had fiery links to his Yorkshire Yorkshire roots with Leeds, I guess, and, and his clashes with us. But um, it's always sort of funny seeing future City players on the score sheet in, in games like that. Yeah, and I do remember Leeds were um, the perennial or, or serial uh, underachievers where they would often have a, a flying start to the season. I think there was probably two or three seasons in a row. Uh, where they were right up the top and then faded dismally towards the end, which was um, incredibly satisfying to see. But, yeah, I do remember Snodgrass being on the score sheet frequently, um, and that was one of the main reasons that I was extremely excited when we finally signed him um, as a City fan, yeah. given that we had seen him score a lot um, in you know for, for our rivals, but um, he'd been linked with us plenty of times before he actually did, um, you know, Put, put pen to paper and come across. So I, I do remember there was a, a level of excitement of his signing purely based on his reputation of being a, a very prolific championship goal scorer. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of season awards, uh, Anthony Gerrard was named player of the year, um, which in, in some ways was a little bit surprising just because of the calibre of players who came in after him. But it sort of underlined just how important a signing he was at the start of the season to sort of level us off. And we sort of talked about this a little bit last time around. But I remember at the time being really sort of keen or excited to see him sign permanently and was a bit disappointed that it never came to fruition. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I remember there being... Um, him coming with huge accolades and being a, a, a extremely under the radar uh, type player, and he was always um, uh, he was always reliable without doing anything um, incredibly over the top. And I guess that again, when we we talk about the players like Ashby, who are um, who kind of just the grafters, who we kind of appreciate for for their work ethic and um, just their reliability. I remember putting him directly into that bracket, and as you mentioned, it was it was quite surprising that he didn't end up signing uh, permanently. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Uh, and then, of course, uh, rather predictably, John Bostock got goal of the season for his goal against Swansea in that first match. So um, 
sort of one of his one of his few highlights for City. I think I think the other was scoring against Leeds. So if you're going to mm. score a worldie on the first day of the season and then score against Leeds, I think that's a pretty good way to um, sum up a City career. Yeah, especially if you're going to disappear straight after and um, yeah. never not, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, um, it, it was a it was a pretty eventful first season back in the uh, in the championship, and it, and it's pretty remarkable to think that it's essentially ten years ago, uh, in a week or two, really, since the Alums took over. So, um, a pretty timely time to be doing this episode. But um, no, look, it's it's been great to look back on, on that season with you, and uh, and thanks for joining me. Not a problem. Great to be here, Alex. And um, yeah, I guess it's kind of nice to go back and, and look at the successes and uh, I guess the pivotal moments in, in the city career or I guess of the last decade. And um, yeah, remember some of the, the key reasons why we are um, where we are now. And I guess the, the fabric of the club, it's been really good to, to kind of ride the wave and um, see the journey. I think it probably speaks testament as to why um, we're able to, to watch a team in League One and have, uh, I guess, such a joy level around it, um, knowing that you know the the bright future that is still kind of uh, snapping at the heels. If if we're able to, um, to to muster another championship run, yeah, no, absolutely. And um, look, you know, it's gonna be great to look for, look look ahead to the next couple of episodes where we'll we'll look at the the next seasons. Of course, there's all the controversy around the Nick Barmby departure uh, and and Nick Barmby's appointment in the first place, um, and then and then of course the wild ride we went on under Steve Bruce, which. Um, you know, it's always interesting. You know, listening to guys like uh, Ken Lewis Potter, for instance, in the current first team, who who basically grew up in the Steve Bruce era of City. So, um, it's sort of it's sort of the era that probably captured a lot of uh, new City supporters, or at least um, solidified for a lot of people their love for City um, around the area and internationally as well. So, a really sort of momentous time in City's history. Yeah, one of the things that was also uh, kind of stood out to me as well as I as I was doing the the kind of research and, and notes before we we came to air, just uh, looking at the crowd figures as well, and just seeing yeah. the, the buzz and energy around um, around Hull and I guess just the city as a whole, how much they really did embrace um, the the Tigers at, at this time period, and and watching that you know that not just making the Premier League and uh, kind of uh, you know, being relegated rather shortly afterwards. But the fact that that kind of moments of making the Premier League really solidified um, the, the supporter base. And, um, yeah, just the, those crowd figures were, were unbelievable. It was it was regularly um, up around the 20,000s. And, um, you know, I guess in Corona times it's hard to, to be judging uh, teams by their crowd numbers and things like that. But we do we do kind of remain optimistic that one day we will see those um, those crowd numbers back in um, at the, the KCOM. Um, yeah, and hopefully that comes with a lot more city success. No, and it's a great point. I think that the top crowd figure for that season was about 24,000. And, you know, uh, some people will sort of, uh, you know, mock the stature of the club a little bit. But really, um, it's it's a, it's a one-club uh, one city with a fantastic support and it really sadly shows and underlines the the negative impact the alums have had on recent seasons that that the crowds haven't been at those heights because yeah this season really was a testament to the fact that there was so much um not negativity around the supporters but just around the the trajectory trajectory of the club in the sense that we were, we'd sort of dropped out of the premier league were shedding players had all sorts of financial issues there really could have been a complete drop off in the crowd support, but but everyone sort of stuck with the club and, and really hung hung with them that season and in the next as well, and it was a really testament to 
to the the loyalty and the passion of the city supporters that that really stuck with the club during this tough time. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that if you we we may dare in in the coming weeks to to give the Alums a, a ten year report card, uh, yeah. if that's a, a segment that would be willing to take on. But I think that. Yeah, if we if we look at where they started, and as we mentioned at the top of the um, the episode, just the the heights and the optimism that did surround the club, and you know we see that reflected in crowd numbers, we see that it reflected in the player signings, and um, yeah, to see what's transpired since it's it's really disappointing when you consider what could have been. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, anyway, um, thanks for joining me for this episode, and um, I'm I'm looking forward to to the episodes to come. Yeah, no, sounds good. It was good to be here and, um, you know, we look forward to the next one. No worries. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. Um, whether you're watching this as, as a patron, we, we thank you for that, or, or whether you're watching it um, a week later um, on our YouTube channel or on audio, uh, thanks for listening in. Um, we'll probably put a, up a poll. We, we did a poll last time on the uh, best free signing of the decade. I think this time I'll probably do... Uh, perhaps the the most exciting Man United recruit that we made during this little um, era of ours, which I think um, is 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 potentially potentially a tricky one to to answer, but um, we'll see how that one goes. But until the uh, until the next episode, thank you for listening. You've been listening to the official Hull City Australia podcast. For more discussion, join us on Facebook in the Hull City AFC Australian Supporters Group, or follow us on Twitter at Hull City AFC Oz. The music was created by Amber and Black. This is on fire. We're going higher and higher. There's no turning back.